So before we um, open the word together today, I uh, just want to make a couple comments about the fast. As you heard from Cheryl, we're uh, over halfway. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, Thursday, I'm over at Starbucks, and that's the third day, and that's always the hardest day. And so I'm sitting there having a meeting with, with Rob, Pastor Rob, and uh, Colleen Chadwick comes in and marches right up to me and goes, I just want you to know I hate this fast. <laughs> to which I said, so do I. Fasting is never fun. If you fast for fun, you need your head examined. It's not fun. But you remember what the word sacrifice means? Because fasting is a sacrifice. To sacrifice means that you give up something you love for something you love more. And I really believe God has called us to this 10-day liquid fast. I believe he spoke to my heart that it was a fast for victories. And that we are specifically lifting up family, friends, loved ones, our church, our city, our nation, our world for the specific victories that we want to see God do. I've been doing a little blog blast online every day. If you haven't been checking that and you're struggling with this, well, even if you're not, it might be good to go and read those because they'll encourage your heart and give you the oomph and the perseverance you need to see this thing through the rest of the way. We're over the hump. We're over halfway and we're, we're doing great. Um, if you haven't heard about this and you haven't been doing it, you can still get in on this and join us. If you are having a hard time making eye contact with me right now because you feel like you've blown it, the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up and he keeps on going. It doesn't matter if you've blown it. That's not the issue. Anything you've done counts. Okay? So if, if you've stumbled, just pick yourself back up and get back in the game. Get back in the race. Some people say, oh, I can't do this. This is just too hard. I've been so encouraged by the freedom I've heard as people have come to me and said, I've got this situation. I've got this physical condition. I can't do this kind of fast, but I've asked the Lord, which is all I've asked you to do anyhow. And God has directed me instead of fasting food to fast television or this or that or the other thing. And I'm so good with that. Grace really does abound in this. Okay. I I mean that when I say that. I had a, we had a note last week from a lady who was, uh, I think, in first service, and she was just giving some testimony about fasting and talked about a time in her life she was a nursing mom and just could not fast. Her church, where she was going at that point in time, um, was calling a fast, and she had five kids. She was nursing. I think she was pregnant again and just said, I can't do this. Got home. One of her kids turned on the television, and on the TV there was an infomercial for some high-tech blender that would make health drinks out of almost anything. Aren't you glad for blenders? (laughs) Blenders and big fat straws, because if you can get it through a straw, it's liquid, right? So (laughs) I'm kidding on that one. Anyhow, she said the Lord just told her, you know, with his wisdom, I can fast. I've got a blender. It doesn't have to be a blender. It can be however God leads you and guides you in this. But I just want to keep encouraging you. This is your last day, though, if you would, please. You know, we're going to break this fast. I'm buying Chick-fil-A sandwiches for everybody. We have over 150 people signed up for that already, and that overwhelms my heart. At the front end of this, I said, if we get 50, I'll be so glad. But you can still get signed up for that. Um, But do that today, if you would, please. Also want you to know, if you haven't been online and checking your emails into Juice, the juice place over here in orchards, they are giving us a 10% discount and they're giving 10% of their proceeds profit back to the church. So I bless them for that. I also think if you drink enough of these, I'll have my $2 million. So get busy people. No, I'm I'm, I'm kidding about that one. Um, I had this other devious little thought today. And that was, if you've got a favorite restaurant and you know, the owner's, why don't you go in there and tell them what Intijuice did for us and say, hey, but we're done on the 26th, and why don't you cut us a break for a month? We'll have hungry people. They'll want to come to your restaurant and eat. Give us a 10% discount. You have not because? You ask not sometimes. So anyhow, you might want to do that. And I'm not kidding. You might. Um, okay, before we uh, we're going to be in Chapter 8 today. Before we um, look at that chapter together, I also felt impressed that I needed to kind of do a little clarification point as we get rolling today. One of the downfalls of teaching something like the book of the Revelation uh, in a weekly sermon format as opposed to 
I don't know, locking you all in a room and just turning on a spiritual fire hose and giving you everything I got over a 10-day period. Uh, when you do it the way we're doing it, you kind of have to go back and review some things and also clarify some things because there's a whole week between each, each message. So I need to do a little bit of that today. Review a little bit and also clarify uh, something. This past Thursday evening, uh, we were sitting around the house and I was talking with my daughter, Jill. She'd been listening to a pastor on the radio who was teaching on the book of the Revelation. And this guy was very, very strong in his pre-tribulation point of view. Pre-tribulation rapture means that you believe the church will be taken out of this earth, out of this world, before the great tribulation comes. And um, this guy was just so dogmatic on this. And Jill said, Dad, I'm confused. Part of why she's confused is I'm a post-tribulationist, okay? I, I think the church is very likely to be here during these difficult times. Um, it may include some of us if we're alive during that season, that point. I don't know that. But I see a huge difference between the tribulation, all the calamity and trouble that's coming to this world, and the wrath of God. I think they're two very different things. And the wrath of God's not aimed at Christians. It's aimed at the dwellers of the earth, the unbelievers, the the people who are rebellious towards God and his plan. And I see a great parallel between what you read about the children of Israel and their being around during the plagues and all that being a part of their exodus out of Egypt into the promised land and believers, Christians being here on this earth and their eventual destination to their promised land, heaven. Um, Several weeks ago, I, I took a week on each of the three positions. Post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and pre-tribulation. And and I told you up front, the reason why we were spending so much time on that was because your particular, one's particular view of the rapture really colors how you interpret the rest of the book. And I tried to be very upfront on the front end as to what I believe, but I also wanted to be very, very open-handed in terms of, but these are what other people believe, and here's why, and here's scripture as to why they would believe that. Part of the reason for my daughter's confusion was this guy left no room for a person to believe anything else but his pre-tribulation point. He said, you can't believe anything else. It's not biblical. Uh, And then he would teach his point of view using certain scriptures to, to point out that point of view, kind of as a proof texting. I didn't tell Jill this, but I I was thinking early this morning, I heard this guy. I was driving back from DIA after I took my son Andrew to the, to the airport really early in the morning on day after Christmas. And I heard this guy. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, that's awfully opinionated. And that doesn't leave any room for really any other opinion. I just want to say, you know, God bless that guy. But I think he's, he's too narrow and he's, he's a bit arrogant not on purpose probably, but I think it's arrogant to, uh, to teach the book of the Revelation that way. I absolutely believe it's fine to have your opinions and to believe them wholeheartedly with conviction. That's what I'm trying to do. But I think you have to be honest in calling it an opinion when it's an opinion. Um, now, I'm not talking about so just be wishy-washy on everything. I mean, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I'm not talking about, well, you know, we don't really know what he meant by that. If you don't know what he meant by that, there's something wrong with you. Now, you could choose not to believe it, but it's clear. Okay? And, and there are things in the Bible that are absolutely clear. And we believe them or we don't believe them, but we're not confused about what they mean. I don't see Revelation as quite being that way. Um, I just think to say that I absolutely 100% know that this means that, end of discussion, it's, it's kind of naive and it has some arrogance to it. Because the book of the Revelation itself is not a series of hard, cold facts, is it? I mean, the very first verse when we started this, this study, let's go to the next slide. The very first verse says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. So there's a sense of this absolutely will happen. In God's sovereign plan, what's unfolding will unfold. 
But it goes on to say, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. That word communicated in the Greek language literally is the word signified, semeno, which means it's a sign. It's a figurative representation of something. And so to say, I absolutely 100% know that this symbol means this, it's a symbol. It's a sign. And so you have to hold this book kind of loosely. Yes, have opinions, but, but hold them as, as that. When something is crystal clear, it's crystal clear. But there's a lot of this book that I don't think quite, quite is that way. Okay? So, um, I'm not trying to add to your confusion by that. I just want to have integrity. And I, I want to make sure that you understand, this is what I believe, this is my opinion. But there are places where that's what it is. I wish I could be more definitive. I just don't think in good conscience you can do that with a book like the Revelation. I'm not apologizing, okay? I'm trying to be as clear as I think the text lets us be clear. Okay, so enough of that. Let's, let's hit the ground running. Two weeks ago, we looked at the end of chapter 6 when the sixth seal is broken and the question is asked by the dwellers of the earth, the ungodly, the wicked, the, the pagan world, the great day of the wrath of God has come and who is able to stand? That's the last question asked in chapter 6. And then last week, we looked at chapter 7, which answered that question. And we see there kind of an interlude, a break in the story. And in answer to the question, who is going to be able to stand in this calamity when these seals and trumpets and bowls are opened up? The answer was twofold. The first half of chapter 7 was a picture of the 144,000. And I told you, I think that refers to symbolic number, 144,000, but it refers to Israel. Jews who genuinely come to faith in Messiah. The second group was a multitude too great to count of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and peoples, okay? I think that's a picture of Gentile believers. It's a picture of the church. We come to chapter 8 today, which is our topic for today. And at the start of this chapter, we're going to read it together in a minute, the seventh seal is broken. And out of that, there comes seven trumpets that are sounded. And chapter 8 is the first four of those trumpets. In, in the midst of the symbolism of this book, I showed you this a, a while ago. Seals, trumpets, and bowls. Seals, I think, seem to release or reveal what needs to be made right. Something is wrong. There's sin. This is the problem. It needs to be fixed. Trumpets, excuse me, seem to announce the judgments upon what needs to be made right so that it can be made right. And then finally, the bowls seem to deliver those judgments, the judgments upon what needs to be right so that it will be. Trumpets so it can be, bowls so that it absolutely will be. And I said to you, I use this, these nesting dolls as an example of when you read through this, it's not totally clear if there is this cascading effect um, that they're sequential, that okay, the seals and that the seventh seal... Oh, it unleashes the seventh trumpet. And when you get to the seventh trumpet, oh, then it unleashes the seven bowls. There's language that seems to indicate, yeah, that's what's going on. But there's also a sense in this that, that it's more overlapping than that. And that you also can read it in a way that says the seven seals really are referring in some ways, to some degree, to the same thing as the seven trumpets, except the seven trumpets are kind of a more expanded view. And then the seven trumpets unleash or reveal, but are tied to the seven bowls. And quite frankly, folks, I wish it were cut and dried and crystal clear. It's not. There seems to be a sequential sense to this, that one is contained in the other. But at the same time, there seems to be some sense of, well, that sounds like a simultaneous occurrence. And so once again, I think it points to the fact that there's a lot of mystery in this book. And it's not a puzzle to be solved. It's not a puzzle to be solved. The revelation is a picture it's like a painting. It's like a mural. And there's a whole lot going on on that canvas all at the same time. 
If we can keep our heads kind of wrapped around it that way, I think we're going to come out in a better spot with this. So when chapter 6, verse 17 ends with that question, the great day of wrath is coming, who can stand? It's not a moment in time chronologically that says the end is here. Tick, 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 tick. It's more of a on that canvas picture that's saying it's here. Watch it unfold. And chapter 7 through 18 is a great interweaving and overlapping of the unfolding of the end as it has come and as it will come. Gosh, that's not totally clear. Welcome to my world. Okay, it's not crystal clear 100%. It doesn't work that way. So, at the end of chapter 6, the wrath has come. There are some who believe that when God's wrath comes, the church is gone because we won't be here for the wrath. There's others that believe that God's people will still be here, but they'll be divinely protected for his sovereignty and his purpose. And even if they aren't 100% protected, there's purpose for that. I'll talk about that in a little bit here. My opinion, again, more is that God's people will still be here for a sovereign reason and purpose. And again, I see an overlap with the pattern in the book of Exodus where Israel came out of those plagues, out of all that stuff, into the promised land. And I think there's great overlap with those stories in Exodus 7 through 12. If you're a note taker and a studier, write that down. Exodus chapter 7 through 12. You go read that and you'll see great parallel with what we're going to look at today in chapter 8. I mean, like, wow. Sounds very, very similar to one another. So, we're going to read chapter 8. Valerie Bacus is going to be our reader this morning. So, Val, if you'll come on up here, we will hear together the word of God. If you'll stand, please, as we've done every week, to, uh, just to honor God's word as we listen to it today. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God... And seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid heaven saying with a loud voice woe 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 to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound amen thank you val you can have a seat okay let's uh, let's work our way through this chapter all right when the lamb broke the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour I don't think that the breaking of this seventh seal uh, is the actual unrolling of that scroll. And the scroll is, I think, the history of mankind, God's plan and purpose for mankind since the beginning of time. I think rather it's saying, okay, now all the seals are off. It can be opened. It's ready to be played out. In other words, the end is here. 
Not as a point in time. It's not like the New Year's Eve countdown, okay? The ball comes down in Times Square. Three, two, one. Boom, it's here. It's more a statement of we're in this season. We're in this time. Um, Again, it's a painting. It's a mural. Lots going on on that canvas all at the same time. But one thing that's interesting to me is the language used here by the Apostle John is very, very similar to the language that the prophet Zephaniah uses when he talks about the end times, when he talks about the last days. I want to read this for you. This is out of Zephaniah chapter 1. It's verses 14 through 18. Listen for what you just heard Val read. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the night corner and excuse me, the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind, because they've sinned against the Lord, and their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth, all the dwellers of the earth. Do you see the, the overlap there? Wonder why that is. I know why that is. Because the same person wrote Zephaniah as wrote the Revelation. No, not Zephaniah and John. Who's the author of scripture? It's God. It's all God breathed. It's all God inspired. And it's amazing to me that something written a long, long time ago has such parallel to what we're looking at now. But I think the purpose, the reason is it's all a part of one big plan that has never, ever changed. Never, ever changed. Does that amaze you? That just blows me away sometimes when I think about the detail that God has in this this book, this story from cover to cover. Okay, put verses 1 and 2 back up. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, some think that that's for a dramatic pause. Some things that's a statement of suspense. I wonder what's next. See, the longer I'm quiet, the more you're looking at me, though, huh? The more you're wondering, oh, my gosh. And I think part of the silence is to draw attention to what's coming. Because silence does that. There, there's some commentators that almost made me laugh that said, well, it had to be silent so that these special prayers could be heard and answered. I think that's crazy. I mean, do you think God goes, hold on, hold on, wait, one at a time, one at a time. I can't take all these prayers at once. Wait your turn. If God did that, what would you do if if you were the six billionth prayer in that line out of all the people on the earth? You'd go, shoot, mine's not going to get in on time. God doesn't have to take them one at a time, does he? No. So I don't think the silence is so that they could each be heard and God could kind of get clarity on what was being asked. I personally, I think another one of these great parallels in the story of the children of Israel and what we're reading here is a parallel with Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. This is a picture of of Israel in the midst of tribulation and chaos and grave danger. They are at the Red Sea. And if the Red Sea doesn't part, they're toast. And look at what this says. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight, excuse me, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I think it's that kind of picture. Whose battle is this? Ours? It's his. And the silence in heaven also reinforces the fact that God is fixing to do something here. And it's going to be of his doing. We're going to see that here very quickly in a minute. Okay, put Revelation 1-2 back up. There's silence in heaven for half an hour. I don't know why half an hour. I, I, I don't know. But there are seven angels... Standing before God who have seven trumpets. To stand before God is a statement of prominence. These angels stand in a place of prominence. I think most likely it's the archangels. Okay? 
Look at the language similarity here in this verse. Gabriel is one of the archangels. We know that, right? In Luke chapter 1, verse 19, Gabriel says this. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. There it is. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Gabriel was an archangel. I think these seven are those archangels. Archangels are announcers. They are heralders of good news. And when heralders of good news show up, they show up with trumpets. Okay? Here's something interesting I discovered in some of my study. A sidelight kind of regarding trumpets and uh, what they were used for in scripture. When you see these unfold, think about how they fit into the story of the revelation. Okay? They announced the great feasts. They sounded a battle cry, a call to arms. They announced the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized God's presence. They heralded the king's arrival. They called people to repentance because judgment was coming. And then finally, they called people when it was time for the tribes to move to the promised land. You could go down that list and go, check, check, check. check. Every one of those fits what we're talking about here in the Revelation. That's so cool to me. Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. We don't know who this angel is. It's just another one. It's not one of the seven archangels. The language here is kind of awkward in terms of how it's translated. Some Bibles say that the incense was added to the prayers. Some say incense was mingled with the prayers as if prayers and incense were two totally different things. Some say the incense consisting of the prayers as if the incense and the prayers were the same. I don't know. I don't think it matters. I think the important point is this. In Scripture, incense symbolizes sacrifice. How many of you know that prayer is a sacrifice at times? How many of you have discovered as a part of this fasting and prayer, it's even more of a sacrifice at times? Here's the other thing I want you to understand. Incense also almost always symbolizes the pleasure of God and his acting upon those prayers. And I want to say to you today, incense symbolizes something being acceptable to the Father. If you've been a part of this prayer and fasting, or if you've just heard about it and you're going to get in on it, I want with everything in me to encourage you that the prayers you've been praying make a difference. We have been fasting and praying for victory, and it is like a sweet aroma to God. He has been hearing these prayers, and He is acting on these prayers, okay? This is microcosm in our little 10 days to what we see here in Scripture, but the truth is the truth is the truth. Whether it's a massive scale like this we're reading about or a small little scale like Good Shepherd Church, 10 days liquid fast for victory, the principle's the same. God's been hearing your prayers and God's acting on those prayers. It's sweet aroma to Him. King David said this about this issue of prayer and incense. Psalm 141, verse 2. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting of my hands as the evening offering. Okay, verse 3 again. Another angel came, stood at the altar holding a golden censer. Much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. If you've been here for this series, you'll remember that back in chapter 5, at the breaking of the sixth seal, that seal was broken and we had a picture of the martyrs under the altar. We don't know which altar, but under the altar. The ones crying out, How long, O Lord? How long, how long will you refrain from judging the earth and avenging our blood on the dwellers of the earth, on the the wicked, the evil people who live here? This is not the same as that. This seems to be a bigger picture, okay? This is more like the saints throughout history, not just the martyrs who are martyred during the tribulation time. These are the people. This is you and me over the past six days and the next four. And prayers we prayed prior to that and we'll pray after this. And prayers, excuse me, prayed throughout the history of the church. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Lord, bring your justice and righteousness to this earth. And yet, Lord, in the midst of that, like Habakkuk said, in wrath, please remember mercy. 
And boy, you're going to see that one answered here as we go through the rest of this chapter and beyond. It's, it's incredible to me, the mercy of God in the midst of something as severe as we're seeing here. So all these prayers that have been poured out like sweet incense before God, it's as if God is saying, it's time. Again, not clock time, but rather it's time for the final unfolding of of my plan, my history that has been in place for countless ages. I've heard all of your prayers, all of your prayers, and it's time. Wow. Verses 4 and 5. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And when the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth... And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Thunder and lightning and earthquakes are so often connected to the judgment of God. Not every time that there's lightning, oh, that must be the judgment of God. But whenever the judgment of God shows up, regularly you find earthquakes and lightning and thunder as a sign of his judgment being present. It's not a PowerPoint slide, but... Romans twelve nineteen says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And it's as if we're at a moment in time here, as this chapter kicks off, it's like, now is the time. I've heard your prayers. They've moved my heart. I've seen your sacrifice. It's like sweet incense before me. In my perfect, God speaking, in my perfect sovereign wisdom, now is the time. And watch what unfolds here after this, folks. Again, a parallel to Exodus chapters 7 through 12 in these first four trumpets. Verse 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, I'm not sure if this blood is literal blood. In the plagues, it was literal blood when you read back uh, Moses and Pharaoh and all that. But it also could be figurative. Joel, the book of Joel, talks about the fact that, you know, when a storm is so bad, it makes the sun and the moon look red because there's so much turbulence in the sky. It could be that. It could be literal blood. I don't know. A third of the trees, the word there is fruit trees. A third of the grass, it's vegetation. It's not just grass. It's vegetation of all kinds. So let's do a little math, okay? Can we do a little math this morning? Put up the next slide. Back in Revelation chapter 6, as we were looking at the four horsemen, those seals, we came to the fourth horseman called death. And it says authority was given them over how much? One-fourth... Of the earth to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts, okay? When we come here to this guy, the first trumpet, what does it say? How much of the earth? A third. So, one fourth plus one third, if you invert your fractions correctly, is seven twelfths. Fifty eight. Point three three three, as long as you can say three. Fifty-eight percent of the earth is going to be under this thing. Does that overwhelm anybody else but me? Isn't that just? It's amazing. And these first four trumpets. They impact a third of the earth. And as we go on to read, we'll see through a series of natural disasters, rather, that they impact the salt water, oceans and seas and fresh water also, rivers and streams and lakes. But it's 58 and a third percent, folks. Some scholars I've been reading scoff at this and say, that's impossible. That's, That's just way too much, especially if God's people are still here. How can that be the case? You know, questions like that are asked when small minds try and wrap themselves around a big God. I don't know how that could be, but it's what it says. And nothing's too hard for God, is it? It's not, is it like, well, boy, when that got over 50%, God just threw up his hands and went, that's it, I'm done. What a tiny God that would be. It just doesn't work that way. Now, some say... Well, but if the church is still here, that's way too much devastation and damage for God to protect all of his people. Maybe, maybe not. 
It's possible, though, that God could have a bigger thing and a bigger plan than just the protection of each one of his little people in the process. And I'll, I'll get to that here in just a minute, okay? Um, God's not so small that he couldn't allow something like this to come to the earth and still not be in complete and total control of what's going on. But you've got to see the bigger picture in that. Here's a part of the bigger picture. Let's jump ahead to chapter 9 for just a quick moment. This is after the trumpets have sounded and the bowls are being outpoured. It says there, the rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass, stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Folks, the purpose of those seals and those trumpets and the bowls that we'll look at later. And I don't know if it's all the wrath of God, the trumpets, are they the wrath or it's precursor to the wrath? I don't care. I don't think we can absolutely know for certain. But it's very clear from Scripture that even in judgment, God's heart is mercy. They would not repent. So what does that mean? That means the purpose of all this stuff was so that they would repent. That does something to my picture of God that just rocks my world. You see, if I'm honest with myself, and I hope if you're honest with yourself, it doesn't take much for somebody to bug me and for me want to want to get even with them. I'm not near as merciful as that. Okay, I'm nowhere near as merciful as that. I'm guessing by some of the looks on your face and the nervous laughter in the room that neither are you. That is a picture of a God who has had everything in this life thrown back in his face. Thumb their nose at him and you can go on from there. Nevertheless, God's heart still, even in judgment, is mercy. It's mercy. He still wants people to repent. Wow. Now, this is not the final judgment, okay? We'll get there when we get to chapter 20 at the great white throne of judgment. And this is not yet until the end. The seventh trumpet, when it sounds, that's when Jesus comes again, I think. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the voice of the archangel, the shout, and the trumpet will blow, and Jesus will come again. I think that's trumpet number 7. But up until the last, very last, very last, very last moment, before it's finally absolutely too late, God's heart is mercy, that they would repent. That they would come to that place of all this calamity in the world finally drives them to their knees, and they go, I give up! Okay, you're God! They get it. They come to faith in Jesus and they're saved. It doesn't seem fair, does it, that the wicked could get saved? Until you think about how wicked you used to be and I used to be prior to coming to Jesus. Can you relate to this? It's the truth. Thank God for his mercy. Okay. Um, one kind of little addendum in all this. The first four trumpets that we're looking at right now unleash catastrophe and calamity upon the earth, kind of against the earth, okay? Mankind is impacted and affected by it. As a matter of fact, I think it's mankind and his sin that's responsible for what happens in these first four trumpets. Now, I am not for one minute... Um, an earther or a greenie, okay? I don't have a bumper sticker on my car that says, love your mother, and it's not a picture of my mother, it's a picture of the planet Earth, okay? That's not me. But I do think when you look at the context of Scripture, biblically, there's a connection between the sin of man and the judgment that comes upon the earth. Now look at this. This is out of Hosea. Chapter 4, it says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, deception, murder, stealing, adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Thank God we live in America and none of that's going on. Oh. Therefore, what does it say? Who mourns? The land mourns. And everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Because of sin, the land mourns. The land has consequence. 
Pastor Ken, I don't get that. I don't either. Totally. But I know there's a connection to these trumpets and what they unleash and how mankind bears the brunt, but it comes against the earth. And it's sin that's responsible. Okay, quickly, let's keep going here. Verses 8 and 9. The second angel sounded as something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Remember I told you early on in this thing, John is at a loss for language at times, and so he uses like. It's sort of like. It's like as if, something like. Words escape him at this moment. It's something like a great mountain burning with fire that's thrown into the sea. I think very easily that could be volcanic eruptions that happen all over this planet at the same time. Is it really blood? Could be. Could be the blood of all the dead animals that are going to be in there. I also had this thought early this morning. It might not literally be blood, but it could be more like, remember when the Exxon Exxon Valdez had that big oil spill in Alaska? Remember that ship right now that's on its side in Italy? They're worried about, get this, 500,000 gallons of fuel they're going to contain or it's going to spill into the ocean. How many of those would it take for a third of the oceans to be dead? Probably not too many. So I think it's very possible to see how this could be. What could be going on? Next verse. The third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. Again, is it a comet? Is it a meteor? Is it actually a star? It very well could be. The name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the water, fresh water, became Wormwood. Many men died from the waters because they were bitter. Wormwood is a bitter plant, okay? It, it is a very bitter plant, and it's associated in Scripture with God's judgment. Put up the next verse, please. Jeremiah nine thirteen through 15, the Lord says, Because you've forsaken my law, which I've set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart and after the bales, as their father taught them, therefore, says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood. And give them poison waters to drink. All three of these first three trumpets include fire in some form. And remember back to verse 5. From those prayers, that angel, that other angel, took that censer and hurled fire to the earth. It's a part of each one of those. When we get to the fourth angel, the fourth angels sounded and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were smitten so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Again, the language is awkward, difficult. It either means that they were all a third less bright. I think probably more likely is a third of the time during a 24-hour period, it's pitch black. Very similar to, again, the plagues in Exodus. That's a lot more terrifying and I think a lot more consistent with the pattern we see with the plagues. Actually, in Exodus chapter 10, we read, God told Moses to stretch out his hand and darkness came over the land of Egypt. The dar- a darkness that could even be felt. It was thick. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky. There was a thick darkness in the land for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Look at this last little statement. But all the sons of Israel had what? Light in their dwellings. That's another one of those reasons why I think we could be here. Christians could be here. And yet there's a sovereign protection of God in the midst of all this junk that's going on. But I want to say this to you today, okay? Maybe a little, uh, I don't know, reality check perhaps. If seven-twelfths of the earth, if 58.333% of the earth is going to be impacted by this calamity, can God spare every believer? Yes. Will he? I don't know. I think back to the tsunamis. I think back to the World Trade Center. I think to the devastating earthquakes that have happened in nations all over this world. And there's no sense that when the tsunami hit, every Christian was somehow miraculously up in a palm tree and nobody died. I think it's possible, folks, that we have to understand that when calamity comes, if we're still here, we could die. But folks, here's what you got to get, okay? Here's the thing. We hate, we are so averse to pain and suffering. We hate it. 
But I think we have to face it because the bigger picture is this. Here's the bigger issue, even as we look at these trumpets and all this nasty stuff going on. The greater issue is not when you die or how you die. It matters not if you die at 5, 25, 55, 75, or 105. It is a dot on the line that goes on forever called eternity. And it doesn't matter how you die. It doesn't matter if you die in a tragic accident or you die peacefully in your sleep. Now, we'd all love to die peacefully in our sleep, but neither when you die or how you die has any bearing on eternity. Does it? Martyrs are going to be in heaven, right? Terrible way to die. Five-year-old children who knew Jesus are going to be in heaven. Too bad they only live for five years. It's not about when or how. You know what it's about? It's all about who and what. The who is Jesus. And the what is, what did you do with his claim to be Savior and Lord? To be the one who came to die in your place. To pay the price for your sin. So that you could spend eternity with God. That's what it's about. So even if Christians are killed in all this calamity that goes on. God's sovereign. God has a purpose and a reason in that. And we have to trust him. Let's wrap the chapter up with this. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid heaven. Saying with a loud voice. Whoa! Whoa! Woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. I had to laugh this week. There were commentators wondering and arguing, could, a, could an eagle literally speak? And I'm thinking, good Lord, in light of everything we're reading, you're hung up on whether an eagle can speak? I mean, Balaam's ass talked, Right? Why get all wigged out about whether... Is an eagle literally really speaking? Why not? This eagle's in mid-heaven. That means it's in a place where everyone can see and it's got a loud voice so everyone can hear. And this is a prophetic judgment. I've told you, verily, verily means, this is important, pay attention. When it's tripled, whoa, 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 you better really pay attention. And this eagle is a symbol of God's majesty and his sovereignty and his might. And this eagle is coming to declare what is coming upon the dwellers of this earth. And it's not pretty. I want to finish. We got just a couple of minutes and I want to finish with this. I want to, I want to end with a time of prayer. Listen to this, okay? We're going to go back, put the next slide up, back to the first couple of verses of chapter 8. I am amazed how good God is. I am amazed how perfect God's timing is. When I asked God about teaching this book and prepared for it months ago, I had no plan laid out as to, well, we'll be right here at chapter 8 on the 22nd of January, and that would be a great time to do a 10-day liquid fast. <gasps> wow! I'm not smart enough to do that. Never on my best day. But I was amazed this week as I was preparing. And it just came together for me. We're at a point where we're talking about how the prayers of the saints move the heart of God to act. Big picture. End of the story. And yet God took me to a place to realize, Kent, good shepherd, that's macrocosm, your microcosm, still has the same impact. Folks, the prayers you've been praying this week and the prayers you'll pray the rest of this week as you fast and pray for victories, it's the same. There are angels in heaven who are going to act on behalf of those prayers and we are going to see victory. We are. So I want to take two minutes as we wrap this up and ask you by yourself, because some of the things you're praying for are very personal or with your spouse or friends. If you want to pray with other people, that's great. And if you just want to say, hey, let's take a minute and silently lift up the personal stuff because you don't want to share it. I don't blame you. But we're going to take about two minutes and just lift up these requests, okay? And I want to say to anybody who's listening on a CD or who's online, I would encourage you to stop right now and do the same thing that we're doing here gathered together today. So let's just take two minutes and 
by yourself or with somebody, lift up those things corporately. Let's lift up those areas. We're praying for victory. And after a couple minutes, I'll close this in prayer and we'll head home. Lord, we just want to thank you again for um, your timing, your perfect timing in calling this fast and directing us to pray and seek you for victories. And the encouragement we get out of the word today from Revelation 8, that you always hear prayer, that it's like sweet incense to you. It's satisfying to you. It moves your heart. Lord, we know that to be the truth about these things that we're praying for. We're not fasting and praying to somehow twist your arm. We're obeying what you've called us to do. But we clearly see in scripture, Lord, that you have called us into a partnership with you. That prayer moves you and prayer influences you and prayer impacts what happens in our lives and the lives of people around us and the lives of people in our nation and even around the world. And so we thank you that you're such a big God. We thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness. We thank you that you're merciful. And even, Lord, as judgment comes, as wrath comes, you always remember mercy. And you will remember mercy and desire mercy up till the very last moment. What a God you are. We're humbled by that thought today. Bless you for the truth of your word. Lord, even as we're in this wrestle of trying to understand seals and trumpets and bowls and tribulation versus wrath and how it all fits together and when this starts and that ends. And Lord, the overarching thing is the last thing we talked about. It's not about when we die or how we die. It's about who we know and who we trust to save us, to give us that place in eternity in heaven with you. And Jesus, this day we are thankful for your sovereignty, but more so for your grace and mercy extended to us through what you did for us on the cross. I want to bless you for that today and be thankful for that today. In your name we pray this. Amen. So, God be with you. Have a great week. If you need prayer today for anything else, we've got some ministry team people who are going to come on up here even as I'm kind of wrapping this up. Please feel free to come and join them. They'll be happy to pray for you. Uh, Otherwise, you don't need that. Welcome to go. Hopefully, we'll see you Thursday night. Remember, if you haven't signed up for your Chick-fil-A sandwich, you need to do that so we can get the count in to the restaurant. Bless you. Have a great week.